Um, as we close out the book of Luke tonight, we are in the last segment of the earthly ministry of Jesus uh, Christ, of his earthly life. And what we have in this, uh, this segment after his resurrection is a 40-day period of time after he has now completed the work of redemption, risen from the grave, and he will ultimately ascend, event we call the ascension, when he will be taken up into heaven with finality. But there's 40 days uh, in between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ that he still yet abides on the earth. And Luke chapter 24 essentially gives to us the events that took place during those 40 days. Now, we saw that the first 35 verses, the study that we had last week, tells us all that took place just in the first day, so day one out of those 40 days. The last 18 verses from verse 36 to verse 53 at the end give to us what happened in the other 39. And so 39 days of Jesus on earth is encapsulated in just 18 verses uh, that we have before us tonight. And essentially, he had three uh, objectives or goals, things that he wanted to accomplish within that 40-day that period uh, after he rose from the grave. And they were, uh, number one, is that he wanted to um, prove beyond any infallible uh, means that he actually did rise from the grave to provide every bit of evidence uh, that, that could be then later on recounted or uh, laid forward to a skeptic or to someone who is just hearing that it could be a, a documented um, fact of jurisprudent um, sight that he was visibly seen after he was risen from the grave. And so that was part of what he came to do was to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he really did rise again. It wasn't an apparition. It wasn't just something that they believed, but they didn't ever see. It wasn't something that he did internally to them, but it was real. It was tangible. And so that was objective number one. The second uh, objective that Jesus had during those 40 days was to lay out the mission that he was then giving to those that would believe on his name. First the 12, then the 120, and then all those that would be saved throughout the New Testament eras to lay out the mission, or what we would call the Great Commission. And then number three, to reinforce the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit that would be coming shortly after Jesus ascended. And so uh, um, to prove the resurrection, to lay out the groundwork for the mission, and then to again reassure them that there was something about to happen to them that would change their lives forever and be the catalyst and the power for them to then complete and fulfill the mission uh, that Jesus was then giving to them. Now, where we pick up, because we're in the middle of a chapter, and so that we catch it in the context and in the flow of the story, Jesus has just spent the better part of his first day risen from the grave walking with two unknown disciples that had left Jerusalem and that were going on a trip via foot to a city called Emmaus. During that time, Jesus joins himself to these two men as they're going, but in a form wherein they don't recognize him. So he's in a different body or a different appearance, and he begins to talk to them about why they're sad and what they're talking about. 
And after they expressed their disappointment in what had taken place and how Jesus had died and dashed their hopes that he would be their Messiah, Jesus began to expound to them the scriptures starting in Genesis and moving all the way through the Old Testament and how every one of those scriptures pointed to the fact that the Messiah would come and that he would die and that he would rise again. And he showed them from Genesis to Malachi how that was shown in the scriptures ahead of time. Then, at the end of their destination, he breaks bread in their presence. They recognize somehow that it is Jesus who had been talking with them. And the moment that he's recognized by them, he then vanishes out of their sight. The bread drops to the ground. Jesus is gone. They look at each other, these two men, and their response to the whole episode was, didn't our hearts burn within us when he expounded to us the scriptures? That when he was talking to us, wasn't there something internally that was bearing witness to the truth of what he said? And then he was made known to us. And it tells us that it was in that same hour that they made their way the seven miles back from Emmaus to Jerusalem, where they then join the apostles and the others that were gathered there and report to them how that they had seen Jesus that day. And so they bring this report to those disciples and the apostles. And that's where we pick up now in verse 36, after they had just given this report. And so it tells us in verse 36, it says that as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and he saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And so now Jesus, for the first of four times that we have it recorded, he now manifests himself to the company of them at large. He's going to do this four times. This will be the first time that he does it to them, where he will show himself to them. He'll have them touch him. He'll prove that he's there in, in physical existence. However, we learn from one of the other gospels that Thomas who because of this receives the, the name Doubting Thomas, is not there among them. And so Jesus will do it again eight days later. Eight days later, Jesus is going to appear when Thomas is present. And then he's going to say to Thomas, Thomas, look, you didn't believe. Put your fingers in the holes in my hands and in the hole in my side. And he says, blessed, you have seen and you believe, but blessed are they that believe having not seen. And so that will be the second time. Then the third time that Jesus will physically manifest himself to them, will be up in the region of the Galilee. They will go up there. Peter and the boys will be fishing again, thinking that they're going back to their old life. And Jesus will appear on the shore and he'll have breakfast with them. That's when he you know, speaks to Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times and restores him. And then the fourth time that Jesus shows up is just as he's about to ascend. He walks with them then out of Jerusalem where they had returned to. And when they get to the Mount of Olives, he then arises, which we will see in the closing verses of Luke tonight. So there's four times that Jesus does this. Now, what is the reason why Jesus continues for these 40 days to show up and then disappear? To be there and then be gone. And in mysterious times with no rhyme or reason, just to show up among them, walk in the room through a wall. We don't even know. Here it says that he just stood in the midst. He didn't walk in. The door didn't open. He was just there. And the answer to that is very practically so that they would understand and that we would understand 
that Jesus is as present with us at any given moment of our lives as though he were here tangibly, even though we can't see him. That he is invisibly present with us at all moments, every moment of our life. That he is right there with us and he wanted them to understand it. He said to Thomas, touch my hands in my side. He showed to him that he had been right there when Thomas spoke those words and said, I won't believe unless I can touch him. Then I'll believe. And Jesus shows up and says, see, Thomas, touch me. He was there when Thomas said it, even though Thomas couldn't see him. And Jesus is with us every moment. He said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is faithful to us and he wants us and he wanted them to understand that he would be with them, that everything that they did was in his hands. And that's an important thing for us to understand. Then he goes on to the infallible proofs. So it says then, I love this, uh, the humanness of the disciples in verse 37. It says, but they were terrified and affrighted and they supposed that they had seen a spirit. Now, isn't this incredible? I mean, all we've seen in chapter 24 since we've begun is unbelief. <laughs> when, when the women came to the tomb, it says that they were perplexed. They didn't understand. The angels had to say, don't you remember? Then they brought word back to the apostles and it said that they believed them not, but treated them like they were speaking idle tales. Peter went back and wondered. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus were faithless. They didn't believe. Now here, Jesus stands in their midst. They can see him with their eyes and they're terrified as though they had seen a spirit. <laughs> like We don't even believe it when we're looking right at it. And so he said unto them, why are you troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, watch it, yet believed not for joy or lest they should have joy and wondered, he said unto them, and I love Jesus, have you here any meat? You guys got any food, anything that we can cook up and snack on? And it says that they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honey and of a honeycomb and he took it and he did eat before them. Now put yourself in the scene for just a minute. These guys are standing there with jaw on the floor, looking at him, watching, seeing as he shows and exposes the holes in his hand and in his side. And then he just kind of goes over to the refrigerator, opens it up, starts rifling through, taking it out, eating like, what are you guys looking at? What's the big deal? I mean, we, we've done this every day. What's the problem here? They see the whole thing and it says that even then still he didn't believe them. So what's going on here? They see him. They're terrified as though they've seen a ghost. They touch him that he's physical. Flesh and bone, by the way. Notice that he didn't say that I'm flesh and blood. In our glorified state, we will be physical and tangible, but we will not be flesh and blood fallible like we are now. We'll be spirit driven, not blood driven. It says that they watch him eat and yet there was no faith. Now, at this point, it takes more faith not to believe in the resurrection than to believe in it. And for you and I, let it be another biblical proof that faith does not come by seeing. There are many people that believe that, well, if God just showed me a sign that proved that he was real or proved that he was with me, 
or if he just appeared and let me see him for just a minute, then I would believe. Well, human testimony and scripture testimony proves otherwise. The Bible is full of instances where people see the supernatural and yet the supernatural doesn't have the ability to produce faith within them. It never does. There's always a reason why or an excuse or a way to explain away the things that you saw or even be forgetful about it and think that you were just dreaming. These guys face to face with it tangibly. They don't yet understand. Their faith is still shaken and not um, able uh, to, to comprehend it. You say, okay, well, if faith is not produced by sight, then why is Jesus appearing to them in this way because they're not going to believe until we get to the next verse versus uh what is it 44 and 45 when he speaks to them and opens their understanding so why is he doing this what's the point here's why because it was absolutely essential that the resurrection be provable in every means possible it needed to happen and so jesus had to appear and say touch me Be on the record that I am flesh indeed and that I really am risen. You're seeing me eat. You're watching it happen. A spirit cannot do these things. Let it be known. That's important. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he he speaks to them, to to the church in Corinth, concerning the, um, the fact that Jesus rose and he's bringing proof to the fact that the resurrection happened and that the resurrection of Christ is essential. And he says this concerning Christ. It says that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the 12. After that, he was seen by above 500 brothers at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep, some have died. And after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one that was born out of due time. Now, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, not only that the resurrection happened, but that it is an essential facet or tenet of the faith that you and I hold. It's a very important thing that we believe and understand. But Paul begins his case and builds it upon the fact that Jesus was tangibly and visibly seen. Now, both in Jewish law and even in modern law, even in the United States of America, facts are established by the testimony of witnesses. In the Old Testament, it was in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. So, yes, I saw it. It was real. It happened. And if you had two witnesses, it could be put on the record that it actually happened. Even in the modern day, we testify in court to what we've seen and our testimony is borne out as being eyewitness proof of something, whether it happened or whether it didn't happen. And so God is providing tangible and concrete evidence that the resurrection actually happened here. And that's why Jesus is having them do these things. But isn't it amazing that it doesn't actually produce faith within them? They're still of a doubtful mind, even at this point. It isn't until we come to verse 44 that faith comes. And notice how it comes. It says, and he said unto them, so it's from his word. He said, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, 
concerning me. So the first thing he does is he points them, like he did to the two on the road to Emmaus, to the Old Testament scriptures, to that which was written concerning him. And then watch what he does in verse 45. It says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. He does something supernatural to them. In John chapter 20, it says concerning the same moment that Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And their understanding was opened at this time. And so the word is expounded, in this case, by Jesus himself. Then he supernaturally opens their understanding by his spirit. And in them then, everything registers and clicks. Faith happens when the word of God is brought to life by the spirit of God inside the human soul. That's where faith comes from. That's why it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't come by seeing. It doesn't come by signs and wonders. Those things produce a crowd, but they don't produce real faith. Only the word of God, ignited by the spirit of God in a soul, that's what produces faith in a person's life. It's interesting, isn't it? What we're doing right now is that we are opening up the scriptures, but only God can open up a heart and make the word of God come to life within that heart so that change and reality can be manifested in that person's experience. That's my prayer every time I teach. God, I've done my part, and I'll do my part. But Lord, unless you do yours, every one of us is wasting our time here tonight. Unless God opens a person's understanding, it's impossible to understand the word of God. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the work of the Holy Spirit in a life is expounded seven ways. And one of those seven ways in which the Holy Spirit is explained or one of his um, works that he does within a life is that he's called the spirit of understanding. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives a person the ability to understand the word of God. And I believe that's something that God will do, does do, and wants to do for every person, but especially for every believer. And if you're a person that you still look at the Bible and you say, you know, I read a chapter and I don't really understand it. Maybe I see something or something clicks from something I heard at some point, but I can't read it for myself and get out of it what I get out of a church service. Then what you need to do is you need to pray to the Lord and say, God, give to me the spirit of understanding and open my understanding to understand the scriptures as they're written so that I might have fellowship with you in them. It's something that he wants to do. For me, this happened simultaneous with my salvation. I remember it. When my girlfriend, who is now my wife, shared the gospel with me, and I broke up with her because I didn't want to go that way and be a part of that life and went my own way for two years, I took the Bible as an unsaved person, and I sought to find the folly in it so that I could show her and the other Christians that were so annoying how foolish they were for believing in this book. And I remember reading through, starting in Genesis, and going through, and and it was so foreign. It was like reading a textbook of Latin language or something, and it was so foreign that I remember throwing the Bible at the wall and said, this is just stupid. And I couldn't understand it. And then, when I finally did get saved, and I said, God, whatever, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it if you're real, but I need to know that you're real. And with an honest and broken heart, I opened myself up to the Lord. 
I took the same Bible and I went like this, Bible roulette. I just, boom, opened it up. And it just happened to open up to Romans chapter one. And so I began to read Romans one. And you know what happened? My understanding was enlightened. And as I read through the book of Romans, sitting by a riverside somewhere lost in Pennsylvania, wanting to take my own life, I read through Romans and my understanding was opened. I didn't understand everything perfectly, but I understood enough to see that the Bible was real and that Jesus was real and that salvation was real. And the spirit of understanding, it comes from God and he gives it to them here at this point and faith takes place. Amazing what a whole day of signs and testimony could not do. Jesus, by touching them on the inside and igniting the word of God, he brings forth faith within their lives. And so faith is birthed within the disciples at this point. We move on from Jesus' um, appearance to the multitude for the first time to now coming in verse 46 through 48 to Luke's rendering of the Great Commission. And that would be the second objective or goal that Jesus had that he wanted to accomplish in these final 40 days. That is laying out the mission that he is now going to give to the believers that are left behind in the world. And so we read in verse 46, it says, he said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses or those that testify of or concerning these things. And so Luke paraphrases the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in this way uh, in Luke's gospel. Now, when we talk about the great commission, which uh, really is what we would say is the mission statement of the church. Where that is recorded for us really is in Matthew's gospel. And if you have, have a, a finger to place here in Luke and you could turn to Matthew chapter 28 in your Bible, I wanna look at uh, just these three verses in Matthew 28 where Jesus gives this vision statement or mission statement, the Great Commission in its entirety. And then we'll look at what Luke says in the context of it in its entirety. And that way we get the whole picture. But in Luke chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus says this. It's the closing verses of Matthew's gospel. It says, And Jesus came and he spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, how many of you work in a place or have ever worked in a place that has a mission statement? That when you go into your job on the first day, you go into a boardroom or some kind of an orientation, and the first thing they hand you is a piece of paper that has the name of the company with its logo or brand, And then underneath it is the mission statement. And it sums up the entirety of the vision or core value or uh, goal of that company, its purpose for existence in one sentence or in one paragraph. And it gives to you a baseline to always understand and come back to 
as to why you're doing what you're doing. Really, that's what the Great Commission is for the church. When you're born again, we know that we're saved. Our sins have been forgiven. Our names are written in heaven and we're secured an eternal place there. But God leaves us here on earth until the time that he calls us home. So what is it that he leaves us here for? Why are we still on earth even though our sins have already been forgiven and we have access into heaven? The answer is because there's something for us to do. And eventually every one of us should come to the point where we say, okay, God, here I am. I belong to you. What do you want me to do? Where it begins is with the Great Commission. That's the mission statement, or you could say the orientation point of our ministry or what we do for the Lord. And and what it consists of when we look at it is really seven things that boil down quite simply. First of all, Jesus begins it by saying that he has all authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me which means that the one who's giving us our sending orders and the one who is leading us and the one commissioning us has power over all the things that he's calling us into and that he's calling us to do. That there's nothing too hard for him. There's nothing that he can't reach. There's nothing that he can't do. He is in control of all things concerning us and concerning the field that he's calling us into. So his authority. The second aspect of it is the sending. You'll see it. He says, go ye therefore. If you have a newer translation, uh, maybe a new King James, it would say, go you. (laughs) You could just write that down in your notes. Go you. But that's not really the context. (laughs) Jesus isn't saying, go you. He's saying, no. He's saying, you go. He's giving us a mission. He's sending us. It's an ambassadorship, if you will. He is calling us to represent him and represent his kingdom in the world that we live in now. Paul the Apostle would actually use that term, ambassadors, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He would say, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's place, be reconciled to God. He says, We are ambassadors for him to the degree that it's as though God himself is using our mouth to say, get right with me. Now, here's the amazing thing about an ambassador. An ambassador that is sent from one kingdom as a representative of that kingdom into another kingdom carries the weight and the authority of the king that is sending him. He goes with all of that authority as though it were the king himself. A couple of weeks ago, um, Terry Gilbert and her family were here and they sang for us a couple of songs and they're now in the Netherlands and her job, she works for the State Department, is that she is the right hand of the ambassador uh, in whatever country she's sent to. And so every three years, they don't want them getting too much power. Or, you know, they have all their reasons. They send them to some somewhere else. But she was sharing with me um, uh, stories of what it was like for her when she was in Croatia and she said that five-star generals, I think Wesley Clark, who is you know, way up there, he, he came to visit. And, and he's like one of the highest-ranking uh, military officials that could come by there. But when he came there, he was actually under the ambassador. Because when you go into the country where the ambassador is serving, the ambassador carries the authority of the president of the United States. So though 
the, the, you know, Wesley Clark outranks that ambassador on American soil. When he's in that country, he's under him. So what does that mean for you and I? If you and I are ambassadors for Christ, it means that we carry with us the ranking and the authority of God within this world. And so we're to carry that a certain way. We represent him. We're to take that seriously. How are you representing God in the world in which you live? That's a sobering thing to think about. It also means, if we're his ambassadors, that all of the resources of his kingdom are at our disposal. That he will give to us whatever it is that we need in order to represent him properly and also to fulfill the mission that we have been given. And so we are sent as ambassadors. And that should mean something in the way that we conduct our lives and in the way that we relate to him using what he gives in order to fulfill the mission that we have. Go ye, therefore. And then he says what we're to do. We're supposed to go. What do we do? The third element of this commission is that we are to make disciples of all nations. That's the mission. So if you're going to encapsulate the mission into one part of this, that's what it is. He says make disciples. In other words, reproduce what you are. Or what's been done in you, now go do it and see that same thing done in others. You say, wow, that's insane. How in the world is it possible for us to do that? I'm glad you asked because Jesus goes on and he says, this is how you're going to do that. There's two elements that are going to make up the fulfilling of this mission of making disciples. Number one is evangelism. And so he goes on and he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so the first element of making disciples is evangelism. That is sharing our faith coupled with the message of the gospel. And as we share what God has done in our lives, along with the message of what God wants to do in every life, and people are then moved by the Holy Spirit to believe and put their faith in Christ, they then are baptized into the body of Christ, and thus they are now also Christians. And so you and I have been commissioned with the call to evangelize. It's an important part of what we are and what we do to share our faith with others, what God's done for us and the message that he's given us that's for them as well. The other part of this or the other half of it, not evangelism, but then we could say education or development or discipleship. After he says baptizing, he then says teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. So it isn't enough just to lead someone to Christ and then say, okay, got one, caught a fish or added a Christian to the kingdom of God. Now I move on. No, no, no. It's evangelism, but then it's discipleship. Then it's teaching them to observe. It's taking them through the Bible. It's doing things like what we're doing right now, verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, letting the will of God and the principles of the kingdom of God be laid down in our lives in a way wherein it affects the way we live, and so we're developed, and the Christ life is cultivated within us through the power of the Scripture and the Word of God. It's interesting that when you look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the various ministries that God calls people into, half of them are always aimed at reaching the lost, and the other half are always aimed at developing the saved. And a balanced ministry 
is when both of those things are in operation. Where there's evangelism, the reaching of the lost, and then there's discipleship, the raising up of the saved and making them fruitful in their knowledge of the Lord. And so this mission to make disciples is done by evangelism and then by discipleship. That's the mission. But it carries with it a very important element that would be the sixth aspect of this commission or this mission statement. And that is when Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Don't miss it. Because if you miss this, you'll fall short in being able to do anything else. It's intimacy. And that is that we are called primarily before we do anything for him or even lift a finger to serve him, to have a relationship with him that is constant, that is solid, and that is strong. And everything else that we do is to grow out of that relationship that we have. And if we seek to fulfill the Great Commission, evangelism and discipleship, but we ourselves aren't in relationship with him, there isn't that intimacy where his presence is real and tangible with us on a day-to-day basis, then we're going to fall flat in everything else. And we ourselves will flounder in our own pursuit of Christ in us. And so intimacy is paramount in this thing that we, that we are called to do. And then number seven, finally, is endurance. He said, I'm with you even till the end of the age. And that is this, that the length of this mission or the duration of this mission statement goes from the time when the Spirit is poured out until Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the age. And what that means is that this commission is as valid and open today as it was in the day that Jesus spoke it. And so every one of us is called into this uh, commission that we have. Now, that's the Great Commission in its classic form, what Matthew sets forth in those verses. Luke, in his rendering of it, adds two elements to it that we don't see in Matthew. The first of those two that Luke adds to it is there in verse 47, back in Luke 24. It says, and he said unto them, thus, or I'm sorry, verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. And so the element that Luke adds that Matthew left out is that our evangelism and the message of the gospel that we preach must have repentance as an aspect of that word or of that gospel that we give is that we must preach the repentance of sin. That it isn't enough just to say, hey, Jesus died for you, and if you just say a prayer, he'll write your name in heaven and you'll be eternally saved. All of your sins will be washed away. If we do that, we haven't been faithful to preach the gospel. We must recognize that it was for sin that we were lost and that it was for sin that Jesus died and that apart from Jesus, for sin, we would die because we would have to stand and take the punishment for our own sin. And thus to accept Christ but not forsake sin is to upset the whole concept and reason that the Gospels provided and that the death and cross of Christ was given. It's an affront and an offense to God and to his kingdom if we would do that. And so repentance from sin is an important part of the message that we give. People ask, why is it that out of all the multitudes that go forward year by year at crusades and in churches, such a small amount of those people actually endure and last and stay in the faith? I believe that one of the reasons why we see that happen so prevalent is because the gospel is preached void of repentance. 
People are coming forward receiving a gift, but they haven't yet counted the cost of putting away their sin. And if they were to do that, they would think twice because they're not really in their heart broken to a point where they're willing to put away their old life and embrace Christ. They'll accept him, but they won't leave all to follow him. And so repentance is an important part of the gospel. Um, It's also, I believe, the single reason why baptism is for adults and not for infants. Because repentance cannot be done by a child. They have nothing to repent of. (laughs) They haven't had a choice. All they've ever known is either being brought up in a Christian home or, you know, they haven't been exposed yet in the way that an adult has to understand what it means to turn away from sin. And so repentance must be uh, part of the baptism experience. The second thing that Luke brings out that Matthew um, negates, and it's concerning our ambassadorship, is that it must begin at home. Notice what Luke says at the end of verse 47. He says that the remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, but beginning at Jerusalem. And that is that the gospel was to spread forth from the place of the closest or from the home base, if you would, and that then from there, it was to spread outwardly. And did you know that that's always the way that Christian ministry in every form must flow? It must begin at home or in Jerusalem before it can go somewhere else and make an impact somewhere else. It is impossible for you and I to reproduce what we are not. In the book of Genesis, when God made the world and he created the seed in each plant that he had made, he made it so that it would reproduce after its kind, meaning that apple trees would bring forth apple trees and pears, pears, and cherries, cherries, and so on and so forth. And the same thing is true with Christians. You cannot reproduce Christianity if you are not a real Christian. And if your Christianity isn't working in your home or in the place where you are centered and planted, then it's not going to work somewhere else. If the relationship hasn't been established and you're not walking with him in your personal life, then you're not going to be fruitful in any endeavor to go out and preach the gospel somewhere else. Fruitful ministry is always an outgrowth of the relationship that we have. And if we don't have that relationship, then there can be no outgrowth. It's been well said by someone that if your faith doesn't work at home, don't export it. And there's many people that want to go on the mission field or join themselves in ministry, but they don't have a real walk with God at home. They're just looking for something to do. Don't do that. It must begin at Jerusalem and be real within his home. But every one of us is given a gifting and a place within the context of this commission that God will use us, and that's for our joy and also for his glory. And so the Great Commission is given. And then the third thing that Jesus wanted to do during these final 40 days that he was on earth, we have in verse 49, and that is to reassure them of the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. It says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye, or wait, in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Jesus had promised over and over again throughout his earthly ministry that a day would come when the Holy Spirit would light a fire in the hearts of those people 
and that that would be for them the power in which they could then live the Christian life and do Christian work. But that that power wouldn't come until after Jesus had died, risen, and ascended to the Father. And three things concerning that promise that we see in this verse. Number one is that that promise hadn't come yet. Even though Jesus had risen, the Holy Spirit in this context had not yet been given. In John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, it was at the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus stood forth in the midst of the feast. And he said to the multitude of people that were there, he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being or out of his belly will flow torrents of living water. And then it says, John in his commentary on that in the following verse, he said, this spake he concerning the Holy Ghost, which was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so Jesus was saying, there's a day coming when this power will come, but it cannot come until after that I have been glorified in it. So what's the point of that and of us talking about it in this way? Here's what it is is that what it means is that there is available to you and I in New Testament times a depth of relationship that we can have with God that transcends even what the Old Testament saints had and even what the disciples had while they were walking with Jesus physically upon this earth. If the Spirit hadn't yet been given, even here when Jesus speaks this promise to them for the final time, then that means there was a day that was to come when they were going to have a deeper relationship with God than they ever had before or that anyone ever had before. And for you and me, that's precious because it means that there is a depth of relationship that we can have with God that transcends the expectation of any of the old. It's a powerful thing to realize because by now the promise certainly has been given, but it hadn't come yet. The second thing that we see in this is that it isn't optional, but it's necessary. That is that the power of the Holy Spirit being present within our lives is not something that we can elect to receive or choose to deny, but rather it's something that every Christian needs. Notice what Jesus says. He says, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. In other words, don't try to fulfill the commission Don't preach a word in my name. Don't raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse lepers. Don't even teach someone a Bible study until the power of the Holy Spirit comes because you won't be able to do it. And so he says, wait until this power comes upon your life. You need it if you're going to be effective to live before me and to live for me in this world. It's something that must be done. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus, in teaching about the work of the Holy Spirit that was to come, he said to his disciples, he said, it is expedient or absolutely necessary that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then the comforter or the helper or the Holy Spirit he was speaking of will not come. Jesus said, you need me to go because it's necessary for you that the Holy Spirit come into your life. It is of a necessity. So what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives that makes him a necessity to us? Well, if you just look at those chapters of John, John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus highlights 
there, just in that passage, 10 things that the Holy Spirit provides for the believer that are not optional, but absolutely necessary. And every one of them is a great blessing. First of all, Jesus teaches that he is the one who comforts and the one who helps. He is the comforter and the helper. And every one of us needs comfort and every one of us needs help within this life because we certainly are not God. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is that he is the means in which the invisible Father is manifested to us. You know what it was like when you didn't know God, but then you did? And someone would say, how do you know that you know God? And you say, I just know. And they say, well, how do you know? You say, I know that I know. Well, what is that know that you know? You know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit in you testifying to the verity and the authenticity of the presence of Jesus and the Father within your life. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. It's not negotiable. It's necessary. The third thing is that he is the one who leads us into truth and reveals scripture. Even as we've already seen, right? Back when Jesus opened their understanding, Jesus said that the spirit will lead you into all truth. And it's the spirit of God that gives us the ability to hear truth, receive truth, and benefit from truth. Number four is that the Holy Spirit is the source of God's peace within our lives. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. And every one of us needs the peace of God for so many reasons within our lives, and it's the Holy Spirit that provides that peace. Number five is that the Holy Spirit is the one who conforms us into the image or gives to us the life of Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's work within us that does it. Apart from the Holy Spirit, it can't be done. We cannot change ourselves into Christ's likeness. It takes the work of the Spirit in us. Number six, the Spirit is the one who brings conviction to our hearts that precedes change. It's the Spirit that stirs something in us that something needs to go or something needs to come in or that something's not right. And it's in the Spirit's conviction that we then yield our will to His will and then the Spirit can add those things or take those things out of our life, whatever needs to be done. But it's the work of the Spirit to bring that conviction and bring that change. Number seven is that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings lasting satisfaction into a life. You cannot satisfy a spiritual hunger or thirst, which every one of us has a spiritual hunger and thirst, with a physical something. It takes a spiritual something to satisfy it, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring that satisfaction into our lives. Number eight is that the Holy Spirit is the one who supplies us with the tools, and the Bible calls them gifts, you can use whichever you like, that we need. In other words, if he's given us a calling and a place within the body of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit that imparts to us those tools so that we can take up our place within the commission that he's given to us. That's why they're called spiritual gifts. They come from the Holy Spirit. Number nine, he's the one who empowers those tools and those gifts so that they are effective. God has given me an ability to teach, to communicate, to share these things with you as I am right now. But as I said earlier, unless the Holy Spirit empowers the tool that I'm employing and uses it in your life in a supernatural way, then it's all for nothing. This is just an intellectual exercise. Take notes and try to do your best with it, but it won't do any good for you. And so it's the Spirit that takes our gifts and makes them productive as we use them. And then number 10, the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us for our lives and he's the one who helps us to pray. 
He teaches us to pray and he helps us to pray. The kind of prayer that prevails. And the Bible says that over and over again. Now you could go through other passages of scripture, Romans chapter 8, and you could go through, uh, again, Isaiah 11 too, and you could see multitudes of other things that the Holy Spirit does within our lives. But all of this to say that the work and power of the Holy Spirit in us is not optional, it's necessary. If we lack in in our void of the Spirit's power within our lives, then we will be fruitless in our relationship and also in our ministry. And so we must be filled with God's Holy Spirit so that we can be used of Him and so that we can know Him in the way that He wants us to. And so for us to become what God intends for us to become, it is not possible without the work of the Holy Spirit fully active in our lives in it. Um, And then number three in this verse concerning the promise is that it's a promise. And if you have a pen close by and you want to, just circle that word promise that Jesus uses there at the beginning of, uh, of the verse in verse 49, when he says, behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you. And what that should do for every one of us is that it should remind us that not only are we assured that if we ask for the full blessing of the Holy Spirit's work, that he will, because he said that he would, because it's a promise, but it also assures us that Anything that the Bible says that the Holy Spirit does within our lives can also be prayed for with confidence. Meaning that if you can take that list of 10 things that I just put up there for you uh, at great trouble to the administrative staff who had to build that PowerPoint presentation so that you could write those things down and take them with you. But if you were to take and look at that list and as you go through and read those things that the Holy Spirit does... And if you can say, I'm lacking in this, that I don't have peace within my life, and that's something that the Holy Spirit provides, or I don't know what my gifts are, or I don't know how my gifts work, or I don't have the spiritual satisfaction that he promised that he would, he would give to me, but I still feel like I'm chasing after things, trying to fill the void within my life, then what you can do with assurance is that you can pray to God that the Holy Spirit would meet that need within your life. And you can walk away in confidence that God's going to answer that prayer because it's a promise. It's something that he says. Everything that the Holy Spirit does, you are entitled to experience and enjoy because God said it's a promise. And that is comforting to me. Because the Bible says that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have the things that we've asked for. And so this promise that Jesus gives is very much a promise, meaning that we are entitled to it. And thus the gospel then concludes in verse 50. And it says now that he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up then into heaven. Now, I wonder if they thought they were reminiscent of the days of Elijah. Remember when Elijah went up and Elisha waited to see if the mantle would fall upon him? I wonder if they were jockeying for that place. When his robe falls off, I'm going to get it. I'm going to be the next one. It says that they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy And they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. 
And thus we conclude the gospel according to Luke and a look at the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. But understand something, that this is only part one of the saga. Turn as we close to Acts chapter one. Skip over the gospel of John and you'll find the book of Acts right there. This was only the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, even though it's the end of the account of his earthly existence. The better half starts next. Notice what it says in the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke, again, who authored Acts, says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Meaning that the end of Gospels, Luke, is not a period, but a comma. It was just the beginning. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them for 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. And so what these disciples were then awaiting after the time that Jesus ascended would happen 10 days later. They'd be assembled in an upper room there in Jerusalem. And it would say that a sound of a mighty rushing wind would fill the place, that cloven tongues of fire would descend upon each one of their heads, and that every single one of them would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that day they were empowered, and the church was born. 3,000 souls were added to the Lord, and the work began. And that's where you and I find ourselves a couple thousand years, a few millennia on the other side of what Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now the promise of the Father still open, the power of the Holy Spirit given to us, the commission still valid, and God has a place for every one of us within the context of that commission that we might serve him, that we might know him for our joy and to bring him glory. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you were willing from the foundation of the world to look at human history in advance and to come into our midst, O oh Lord, and to dwell among us and live among us and to give us an example of what man was intended to be in the person of your Son. And then for him to lay down his life as a ransom for our salvation. And then not only that, God, but to give us resurrection power of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And so tonight, Father, as we look into these things, as we consider your call and your place for each one of us, we ask tonight, God, that you would refocus our attention, that it would be drawn away from the things of this world and this life and placed exclusively and only on your Son and on his kingdom. We pray, Lord, for a fresh filling with your Holy Spirit, that we would be endued with power from on high, and that we would be fruitful and usable for you in the days in which we live. 
that we might find our place within your commission and your call. But most of all, Lord, that we would know you, that we would walk with you, that we would hear your voice in the quiet hour, that we'd sense your change within us through your spirit that works in us, and that we would please you with our lives. So God, come to us afresh. Fill us with yourself. Send us forth, Lord, with your power like you did them in those days. And may we be effective, Lord. So hear our prayer, Lord. We believe that we're asking according to your will. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.